This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello and welcome back to Tax Records, our podcast looking at the latest hot topics in the tax world. My name is Todd Bromwich and I'm a senior associate in the tax team at Hall & Wilcox. Uh, today, I'm joined again by my colleague, Frank Anopoulos, a partner in our tax team. Uh, this episode will be providing you with all the latest updates in relation to Section 100A of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1936. Hi, Todd. It's good to be back for Season 4 of Tax Records. Excellent. So, Frank, Section 100A has been talked about a lot recently, including by you and I, uh, including in our last season of Tax Records. Uh, could you please give us a quick recap of where we left off last time and the latest developments since then? Sure, Todd. So the last time that we did a podcast uh, about 100A, it was um, August 2022, seems so long ago. Um, But what we had then was uh, the Commissioner's guidance, uh, which had at that time issued in in draft and the consultation process had started um, on that, that, that draft 100A guidance. And we had also had at that time uh, the court's uh, decision, the federal court's decision uh, of a single judge in uh, Guardian AIT. Uh, since that time, uh, a lot has changed. Uh, what we have now is uh, the commissioner's finalised guidance uh, on section 100A um, and uh, also the decision of the full federal court uh, on appeal from Guardian AIT um, and that happened in December and January, respectively. Uh, so we have uh, lots more to talk about at, at this session, and, and hopefully what we can do is um, catch up our audience on uh, what some of these more recent developments uh, mean for them in a practical sense. Great. Thanks, Frank. Uh, first things first, you mentioned the ATO guidance materials had been finalised. So what changed between the drafts and finalised versions? Sure, Todd. So in terms of the ATO's guidance material, uh, between the drafts and the final versions of those, um, I think it's fair to say the key principles have remained uh, largely intact, but uh, there has been some uh, tinkering, uh, some tinkering around the edges, but some pretty some pretty material tinkering. Um, one thing we see in the final uh, ATO guidance, uh, and that I should say, is tax ruling 2022-4, is a number of new examples. Uh, And uh, in in the tax ruling in 22-4, the commissioner provides four new examples. Uh, And and those are examples that I think really illuminate uh, the importance of uh, what the context suggests and how that affects the potential application of uh, section 100A. And in these particular examples, uh, the, the commissioner notes that um, you know, a trustee may make a decision um, in this case to, uh, to, to to retain trust funds or for a different beneficiary to benefit from uh, a trust distribution uh, to the beneficiary who was intended initially uh, because of uh, you know, very idiosyncratic reasons like a particular family member having particular medical needs or um, established cultural practices about um, 
what happens in family groups and, and, and how family wealth may be shared and how that might be affected by specific cultural habits or practices. So, um, you know, those are, uh, I mean, I think it's good that the commissioner is giving more examples and it's good that the commissioner is giving uh, quite some thought and, and quite some depth of thought to, um, to some of these issues and also taking account of some of the submissions that he's received um, uh, as part of the consultation process on these rulings. We also, I think, importantly, have seen some tempering or some softening of the language that the Commissioner uses in the final ruling compared to some of the language that was used in uh, the previous draft. Um, so one example of that, um, if people, uh, as they're listening to the podcast, want to have a look at the draft ruling uh, versus the final ruling, is what's provided at um, example nine. and. Um, there has been, in that example, a, a notable um, tempering of the language from uh, in the draft ruling requiring a distribution to be held, uh, set aside and held under a separate trust. And of course, that would uh, suggest or connote uh, some requirement for a degree of formality around how that was created and recorded to uh, basically allowing an amount to sit or to remain um, with a trust um, for the benefit of an individual beneficiary, but to sit with the trust um, without being set aside and held uh, on a separate trust. All right, so that's the uh, that's the commissioner's tax ruling where he sets out his views on the key technical issues at play with Section 100A. But I understand, uh, and we've looked at at length, that there's also a practical compliance guideline that has been put out and finalised at the same time could you just run us through the changes between the draft and final version of that PCG? Sure. Uh, so the, the PCG, that's PCG 2022-2, uh, that has, compared to the ruling, uh, undergone uh, quite some more significant uh, surgery. Uh, so in this ruling, there are um, seven new examples that the commissioner has provided. Um, and... Uh, those who might recall or be familiar with the practical compliance guideline might remember that the commissioner adopted this, um, a, well, you might call it a traffic light kind of system as a um, risk ranking uh, mechanism. Uh, the commissioner has, has adjusted that risk ranking mechanism quite significantly and uh, has done so by eliminating a uh, entire category of arrangements that he had previously placed in the blue zone. Um, the, the blue zone was always a little bit, um, well, I mean, it, it was always a bit hard to understand because it sort of seemed to be a, a, a no man's land between um, you know, arrangements that were clearly uh, in the red, that would have high compliance risk and arrangements that were in the blue, in the green or the white, I'm sorry, uh, that had a lower compliance risk uh, the blue zone was, uh, I always interpreted it as a bit of a, um, you know, in between sort of uh, the commissioner saying, we haven't made our mind up about these yet, but if we see them, we're going to have a closer look. So that category has been cut out of the final guidance and instead some more examples and some more pointed examples have been given um, in the green zone uh, and in the red zone as well. So in terms of what the purpose of this document is and in terms of it being a, you know, a, a practical compliance document and something that people can use um, as a benchmark or a measuring stick for their arrangements and, and 
to do a bit of self-diagnosis about where they or their clients would sit on the uh, you know, on the risk spectrum. Uh, doing it this way, I think, has uh, has some considerable benefit. And I said before that everyone has a lot to say on Section 100A, and not least you and I. But uh, what's your sense of the ATO's response to practitioners' submissions on the draft guidance materials? Uh, were there concerns taken into consideration in these finalised documents? Well, yes. I mean, uh, there was a consultation process and, and uh, the commissioner did receive uh, submissions from uh, various sources, uh, the, the tax professional bodies and uh, practitioners and, and many others. And I uh, read a number of those and, and um, uh, some of them made some, some quite compelling and powerful points about the limitations of the commissioner's guidance. Indeed, some of those submissions questioned whether there should be any guidance at all and, and whether it was a good idea to release a document like this um, and setting out um, examples, some of which were uh, simplistic or not really founded in the reality of what people might be doing from day to day. Uh, the bottom line is, yes, I think the commissioner has uh, heard and and um, and been respectful of those submissions. Um, and in consequence of that has made some, uh, some positive changes to the guidance in, in the final form in which it was released. But, you know, did practitioners and did the, did did taxpayers get um, everything they might have wanted or everything they would have wanted, both in terms of clarity and the pitch of these rulings? Most probably not. Uh, thanks, Frank. Uh, next cab off the rank is the Guardian AIT appeal. Uh, you mentioned before that uh, some time ago, late 2021, we had uh, the first instance federal court decision in the Guardian AIT case. And then earlier this year, in January 2023, we had the full federal court's decision on the appeal. Uh, can you just quickly run us back through the facts of this case and the issues just to get us up to speed? Sure, Todd. Um, so what brought 100A uh, into play uh, in the Guardian AIT matter was uh, the structure that the taxpayer was running. So the taxpayer had a family trust. Uh, that family trust made income from a variety of sources. Uh, that family trust distributed that income uh, to a corporate beneficiary uh, where the, the trust that was making the distribution was also a shareholder in the company that was receiving the distribution. And subsequent to that, uh, the corporate beneficiary would effectively return uh, the amount of that distribution back to the trustee as a dividend. So. Uh, this has what's come to be known as a, um, a washing machine or a, a circulating distribution. Um, and uh, it was the element of this that, um, that, that caused the commissioner to um, examine the application of Section 100A uh, is the fact that um, the distribution once made to the corporate beneficiary, uh, as a matter of fact and as a matter of sequence, um, was uh, after some time returned to the corporate beneficiary. And for Guardian AIT specifically, the key question was whether or not that course of events, so distribution to the company and the dividend from the company back to the trust, what was the subject of an agreement? You know, was that a preordained outcome? Uh, and was it pre-agreed that once the distribution had been made by the trust to the company, that the company would in turn act to return that benefit to the trust as a dividend. 
Uh, you and I have both recently written about the appeal decision at length, and if anyone wants to read that, they can jump on the Hall and Wilcox website and uh, have a read through. But for this podcast, could you just give us a quick summary of the outcome on the Section 100A issue in this case and, and the principles that have come out of this one? Sure, Todd, and, and uh, indeed, both of us have been immersed in this decision and, um, and uh, spent quite a bit of time uh, putting together an article uh, that's been circulated to our distribution lists about it. But uh, in short, at first instance, um, the taxpayer was successful um, uh, on its argument that 100A should not apply to this circulating distribution and that it should not apply because there was no, as a matter of law or fact, there was no agreement that at the time the present entitlement was created by the trust of the company, that the company would be returning that present entitlement to the trustee as a dividend. Uh, now, the commissioner uh, appealed that particular point and the application of Section 100A to that particular set of facts um, to the full federal court. Um, and I should say specifically in relation to only one out of three uh, income years where this arrangement uh, was was carried out. And he, the, the commissioner, um, I mean, in very short summary, the basis of his appeal was that, um, that the evidence was such that uh, an agreement should be inferred, um, an agreement for the return of the distribution should be inferred from the facts. Firstly, because there was a practitioner uh, involved who was giving advice to the client and, and that advice did did intimate at some uh, point in time that um, an arrangement of this nature uh, may assist in managing some tax issues and in particular tax issues around Division 7A. And um, also because there was an element of repetition uh, in this particular set of facts. So once it had been done once, it was repeated again and then repeated again. Now, uh, that's the point that the commissioner took uh, to the appeal court, and that was the basis of its appeal. And on the section 100A uh, question specifically, uh, the, the taxpayer was uh, successful and the commissioner was unsuccessful. And the reason that the commissioner was unsuccessful was that the court found that the particular facts did not suggest that there was indeed an agreement as between the trustee of the trust and those parties controlling the company uh, to have this orchestrated sequence of distribution and dividend coming back. Um, and again, and, and we've said this in our article and we've said this many times, um, that was a finding on these facts and a finding of uh, fact. And um, that itself is, uh, I think, the most important takeaway point. And that is that these matters are determined on the particular facts of each case. And you know, a case like this really shouldn't be taken as uh, providing a, a blanket sanction um, for any particular type of arrangement or any particular type of uh, dealing between parties. Okay, thanks for that, Frank. Uh, now on to our other Section 100A decision that has come through recently, the B-Blood decision. Uh, this was a Section 100 case where the decision was handed down in 2022 by the federal court again. And I understand that the full federal court appeal is actually being held this month in February 2023. Uh, what were the key facts of this case, Frank? Sure. Well, so the facts of this case, um, Todd, were uh, are a lot more complex, were a lot more convoluted, and and um, 
and I, I sort of don't want to get lost in too much detail because um, you know, it was a very complex scheme. But uh, in short, uh, and summarising it hopefully as, as briefly as I can, uh, what B blood involved was an arrangement where um, there would be a, or there was a, a share buyback carried out. That share buyback caused significant income to be created in a trust. And then the way that the trust distributions were managed uh, meant that um, a, while a small amount of uh, actual trust distribution was made to a company, a very significant uh, attribution of tax income was made to that beneficiary uh, such that there was minimal tax paid on those significant proceeds because of the way in which these distributions were were carried out and the way these distributions were made. And it created a very significant um, capital amount or capital reserve in this trust. So that's the broad structure of what happened. Um, a couple of things that made this uh, these particular facts important and I think that um, caused the ATO to seek to uh, apply Section 100A to this particular matter is that um, somewhat different to the situation in Guardian, um, this arrangement was uh, was stitched together, if I can put it that way, as a singular uh, scheme intended to operate in precisely the way that it did operate. So it was a, a, it was a, an arrangement that was planned, and it was carried out in the way that it that was planned. Uh, and the other element I think, which is important as well, Todd, is that in order to make this arrangement work, and in order for at for it to have these particular uh, tax outcomes, there were a number of intervening steps that happened at or around the time that the scheme was actually carried out. And they were steps that had to happen in order to allow this plan to work and these outcomes to be achieved. So those steps, that those intervening steps involved, uh, among other things, uh, the uh, introduction of a corporate beneficiary into uh, the taxpayer group, and also, relevantly, uh, some amendments being made to the terms of uh, the relevant trust deed to enable these distributions to be made in the way that they actually were. All right, so uh, I think you almost got to the answer to my next question there, and I think uh, everyone can kind of if they haven't read or heard of this case, they can probably see where this is going for the taxpayers. But where did the federal court land on this case? And are there any key things that practitioners can take away from this decision? Sure. So uh, in B blood, uh, the court at first instance uh, found for the commissioner and, and found that this arrangement did, um, and the, the elements of this arrangement were uh, ones that section 100A should respond to with the result that uh, the present entitlement purportedly created in favour of the beneficiary should be struck out or invalidated. And that, that's the way that section 100A applies. A few of the important reasons that the court gave for coming to this decision were, as I've said, the fact that this was a, a planned course of action and it was a plan where the various elements were stitched together and were designed to operate um, sort of operate codependently uh, so that um, the scheme could be uh, carried out as it was. Another reason was the fact that, um, as I said previously, that 
um, there were these intervening steps that were carried out and that they needed to be carried out so that this plan could play out in the way that it was designed to play out and the way it was designed to be implemented. And I think the other thing um, that was important and that is important arising from this case is uh, the role that advisors may, professional advisors to a taxpayer may have to play, not only in terms of whether Section 100A apply or doesn't apply, but also in the way that these matters procedurally uh, are heard in court. Because um, uh, when reading the decision, uh, you know, we see that um, you know, the key witnesses in this case were the advisors to the taxpayers, uh, their accounting advisors in particular. Uh, so these factors all put together caused or compelled the court uh, in this case to find in favour of the ATO. Well, I'm sure we're all looking forward to the full federal court's appeal judgment in this one, which, uh, given it's being heard this month, uh, that decision will likely be handed down later this year. Uh, but I also wanted to take you on a little bit of a tangent. Uh, this episode is on Section 100A, but there was a related issue that came out of the Guardian AIT case, and that is Part 4A. Can you speak to that, that aspect of the Guardian AIT appeal decision and what it means for our clients with trusts? Of course. Well, uh, so I said before uh, that um, in the Guardian AIT appeal decision um, that the, the taxpayer won and the commissioner lost on the section 100A point. Um, however, the commissioner had what I think is a very significant uh, win and what many people think is a very significant win on uh, the application of Part 4A. Now, let me say, Part 4A was always a feature uh, in this case. Uh, at first instance, Part 4A um, had been raised as a, a, an alternative ground to Section 100A. And at first instance, uh, the Commissioner was unsuccessful uh, in his um, argument that Section 100A should apply to the particular arrangement involving the circulating distributions. That was also taken uh, to the appeal court um, by the commissioner. And on that point, the commissioner was successful. And, um, and that is a very significant uh, finding. I, I think that um, you know, oftentimes uh, we uh, do give advice and you know, part 4A might be sort of um, lurking in the background or uh, it might be something that uh, is um, a one of the things that we might factor in, but really not one of the things that we would um, you know, give, uh, that many taxpayers would give full consideration to, um, particularly with an arrangement like this and the way that this arrangement came about, which uh, I think if you ask many people, they'd think of it as pretty standard or pretty vanilla. You know, what's so special about a trust uh, distributing to a company that's a beneficiary, uh, you know, isn't this the kind of thing that happens all the time? You know, uh, isn't it commercial? Isn't it asset protection? Isn't it everything else? You know, people can struggle to see um, where the part for a risk or issue lies. But um, the court here is reminding us that, um, well, a few things. One is that um, part for a certainly can attach itself to arrangements like this. And, and they might be arrangements that we see as, um, it's, you know, uh, as I say, ordinary or vanilla or, you know, there's nothing special about them. But um, yeah, presented with the facts, the court in this decision um, did decide and did hold that Part 4A should apply to the particular arrangement that was put in place and carried out by the taxpayer. I think the other point that this reminds us of is that um, 
this follows some more recent reforms to Part 4A. Uh, it, it does make it, um, well, I think in many ways, a little easier for the Commissioner to attach Part 4A to a broader number of arrangements. And again, to arrangements like this that many of the accountants and advisors listening to us might consider very plain, very vanilla, um, you know, nothing controversial or, or clever about them uh, and, and so on. You know, it's, it's, I think the message that I take from it and that I've been communicating uh, to people is that, you know, nothing is so simple or simple enough for Part 4A to not apply to it. You know, even something like this um, could attract the operation of Part 4A and it really is going to depend both on what the facts suggest and, and, um, and what, what the underlying um, family or commercial rationale is for a particular arrangement. And this case and lots of other cases, Todd, you know, show us that you know, it's one thing to say that there's a commercial rationale or a commercial explanation or an asset protection explanation, but what's going to happen when you get to court is that that rationale is going to be tested. You know, the, the court is going to say, well, you say that you put this structure in place to get asset protection. Do you actually get the asset protection that you were intending to get in the way that you were intending to get it? And if that explanation doesn't stack up, uh, you can expect the court to uh, to scrutinise that very closely. Okay, thanks for that, Frank. Uh, just to round this out and to take it away from the tax technical aspects, uh, what are you seeing in the market at the moment in this space? Well, um, as you would well know, I mean, we have a number of, of active matters uh, that we're running where Section 100A is a live issue uh, and Section 100A is the, the central issue in a number of audits and, and a number of disputes. And as we've been uh, explaining in this podcast, obviously in the 100A area, a lot has been happening. There's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of movement. Um, the, the finalization of the ATO's decisions, these appeal decisions in Guardian um, and in, in B Blood, there's been a lot of color and movement in this area. And I think as a consequence of that, a lot of that audit activity had slowed down or in some cases had even been suspended and, and that was um, quite reasonable uh, quite reasonable for the ATO to act that way uh, because there was further clarity coming through now that I think uh, now that uh, there has been um, this additional clarity both by the rulings being finalized and by the um, the appeal decision in Guardian AIT um, uh, having been handed down we have seen um, the ATO basically, you know, pull the trigger on some of these audits and, you know, progress them uh, to decision or, or to uh, to request further submissions on um, on a, a point that has been under review in an audit. So you know, I wouldn't exactly say that it has opened the floodgates, but it has certainly given impetus back to uh, progressing some of these audits. So I expect that they will be keeping us uh, pretty busy uh, for the next little while. Uh, I think as well that, um, you know, as I say, there has been lots of movement in this area. Um, you know, the ATO uh, released its final guidance uh, before the Guardian AIT decision. Um, so that the final guidance doesn't really, uh, didn't really have a chance to incorporate or, or to, to have a response to that Guardian AIT appeal decision. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not um, there is, um, whether in the form of a decision impact statement or whether the, the, the guidance material is pulled back in so that it can be um, so that it could be updated or amended to reflect what's come out of these decisions is, is something that I'll be looking out for um, in the next little while. 
And um, I think we should also expect now uh, and in an environment where lots of clients are being subject to review, and we've talked previously, Todd, about the top 500, next 5,000 compliance programs and so on and so forth. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the ATO a little bit more encouraged and enthusiastic about putting some of the arrangements that clients might have and that they review under those compliance programs under the microscope, um, particularly from a part 4A point of view, uh, as well as Section 100A or Division 7A or whatever other specific um, anti-avoidance um, provision might come into play. Uh, great, Frank. Uh, well, with all that continuing compliance activity uh, and the BBOT appeal and potentially even the Guardian appeal uh, going higher to the High Court, uh, I expect that some of those gaps in what uh, judicial guidance we have on Section 100A will hopefully be filled uh, and we'll get to understand a bit more about how the courts are going to apply this uh, and provide some additional judicial guidance. So watch this space. Um, Thanks for joining me today, Frank, and thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's episode. Uh, we'll be writing about any continuing developments on our website and on LinkedIn. Uh, and if the changes are significant, we may even provide an update in season five of Tax Records. If you have any questions about what we've covered today, uh, please contact a member of our tax team. You can find our details on our website, paulandwilcox.com.au, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm.